China's influence is rising, but how is it changing the countries around it? From Radio Free Europe, I'm Reid Standish, and this is Talking China and Eurasia, a podcast about how Beijing is changing the balance of power. It took 14 months, but for the first time since Russia's full-scale invasion, Xi Jinping spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. But does it mean that China's prepared to broker peace in Ukraine? On today's episode, we're looking at China's peacemaking moves, breaking down this important call and looking at how it fits into some of Beijing's other political moves around the world, including its relationship with Europe. My guest today is Finbar Birmingham. He's the Europe correspondent for the South China Morning Post, and he's joining me from Brussels, where he covers Beijing's relationship with the EU. Finbar, thanks a lot for joining me today. How are you doing? Hey, Reid. I'm doing very well, thanks. The sun is shining in Brussels, which makes a big change from the last few months, so I cannot complain at all. Well, very glad to hear it. Um, So I know it's been a busy few weeks, like always for us, um, but I want to get started by talking about this call between Xi and Zelensky. Um, You know, can you start us off, you know, tell us what was said, what's changed since it happened, and what stood out about it to you? Yeah, I I mean, it was, um, I think, from my point of view, um, what was said almost feels secondary to to the fact that the call happened in the first place. I mean, we've all been waiting for this to happen, as you said, for 14 months. It's been a constant drumbeat uh, in every diplomatic exchange between Europe and and China. They've been asking um, Beijing, please, can you get Xi Jinping to speak to Zelensky? It didn't seem like it was it was going to happen, and and so when when the news dropped last week, we were all taken by surprise. Um, you know, uh, all of these leaders that have been flocking to Beijing from Brussels, from Paris, uh, Berlin, they've all had this ask. Uh, and as far back as the EU-China summit in April 2022, I remember this being one of the top items, one of the biggest asks on the part of the EU. Uh, Xi Jinping recently told uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, that he would indeed, he was happy to speak to Zelensky, but only when the time was right. Um, People here in Brussels pointed to the fact this week that China requested the call. Uh, You know, it was was at Beijing's instigation. And so that was seen as, as a positive thing. Perhaps it showed that they felt the need to engage in some damage control after as I'm sure we'll get on to a rough few weeks in EU-China affairs. But in terms of the of the content, um, I mean, we've all looked at the two readouts, um, you know, the, the one posted by Zelensky to Telegram and the one the Chinese uh, foreign ministry posted. Um, and, you know, there, there's a talk on the part of China about respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity. I mean, these are really common uh, terms that, that China often uses in, in diplomatic exchanges, but to be, to be used uh, after a call with Zelensky, I think is notable um, on the part of Zelensky. Uh, he, he made the point that there could be no peace at the expense of territorial compromises. The territorial integrity of Ukraine must be restored within the 1991 borders. So a nod here uh, to the recognition of Ukraine's borders as of uh, 1991. So that would be pre the Russian annexation of, of Crimea. Um, uh, other language that jumped out to me, I guess, was, was again, nothing we haven't really heard before, but the context is interesting to hear uh, the Chinese uh, say that they'll uh, neither watch the fire from the sidelines or 
add fuel to the fire, let alone take advantage of the crisis to profit. I mean, that's kind of shorthand um, for uh, having a dig at the US, sending arms to Ukraine, long-standing sort of commentary from China. Um, uh, but again, to, 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 to make clear that they think that they will not take advantage of the crisis to profit is probably another uh, nod to the fact that many people point to, to, the, to the, you know, imports of, of cheap oil from, from um, Chinese imports of ports of cheap oil from, from Russia. But I think overall the context is Xi Jinping's trying to hammer home his uh, point that, that China's neutral in this affair. Uh, what else stood out? I guess the appointment of uh, Li Hui as a special envoy uh, to, to try and sort uh, right, to, to yeah. try and I suppose um, uh, you know uh, someone who has spent 10 years as Chinese ambassador to Russia that's something that certainly was, was pointed out uh, in my conversations in Brussels uh, you know, so it's. Uh, I think what's noteworthy is that after months of standing on the sidelines and mo months of uh, what, what's been described broadly as pro-Russian neutrality um, and declining to call uh, Zelensky, it seems that China's taken a more active role. So rather than the actual content of the conversation, I think that was my main main takeaway. Right, that, that they're being anyway. they're being more active, less sitting on the sidelines than in the past. Um, so I think yeah. so. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you, you know, you alluded to a few things there that we're going to we're going to be unpacking uh, today in the episode. But, um, you know, I'm really curious if you can tell, you know, what was the reaction within Europe to all this? I mean, you've mentioned, you know, we're talking about China being more active. You mentioned about a lot of the diplomacy happening. Macron, you know, he's traveling to China in April with Ukraine and peace talks very much on his agenda. I mean, what's your sense? Was this call met positively is there a sense that europe is, is there a sense in europe that beijing is perhaps changing its approach i think broadly speaking uh, the the response is that it's objectively good that c called uh, zelensky uh plenty of people question the motive um you know why does china feel the need to do this now after 14 months why didn't it do it sooner but i think it's something that you know as, as i mentioned that has been asked for uh, of china from eu capitals for for more than a year now so the fact that it finally happened i think people were pretty pretty pleased uh, came after much cajoling as i mentioned all of the steady stream of, of leaders going to to beijing to ask china to use its influence and you know suppose if you make this ask for so long and then eventually it happens then i suppose you have to be pretty, pretty pleased uh, in some quarters i suppose in, in in paris there were plenty of people thinking that this was the fruits of these were the fruits of um, of macron's lavish uh, trip to, to to state visit to to china uh, i would be a bit more skeptical about that uh, and i think in general uh, more more sort of uh, rational line of thinking is this is the bare minimum from China. Um, we'll see what happens now, watching closely for what Li Hui will deliver right. as, the, as, as the sort of envoy on this front. Where is he going to go? Who is he going to meet? In what order? The choreography is obviously important. Um, but, I mean, in terms of, 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 of where they, whether China is changing its approach, um, I mean, that... that depends on on who you speak to um some officials have been quite excited by the by the fact that this call took place and in the immediate aftermath that there was a vote in the un um uh you know about strengthening ties with the council of europe but there was some language in there on ukraine and, and china voted for the overall 
resolution, even even though it abstained from the from the vote on the on the specific language on Ukraine, and and they're like they're they're saying to me, okay, these are baby steps, but they're positive, and we're we're very happy with this. Others are a bit more cynical, um, you know, the, why now? And they point to the the, the mess that was uh, that was left by the Chinese ambassador to Paris, uh, Lucia. Okay, well, who, well, you 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 uh, bring them up, so I'm going to have to jump in here because I this is, yeah. this is my next question <laughs> yes. that I that I want to ask you. You know, I mean, I, I think that that gets into a lot. You know, you're talking about questions about the motive. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions about the timing, right, as well. Um, and, you know, you you bring up Lou's comments, um, you know, which really set off this political st- uh, firestorm when he made them in late April. He was on French TV. Um, you know, he said that countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union have no effective status in international law. Um, I know with a lot of the analysts and sources I've spoken to, you know, they see this call as a type of damage control um, on the part of Xi doing doing for Lude's comments, which really seem to spark a lot of backlash, unsurprisingly, in a lot of former communist Europe. Um, and this is also coming at a time when Beijing's hoping to repair its ties with Europe. We see there's this important China-EU summit happening uh, in June. So, I mean, let, let what have you heard about the fallout from those comments? I mean, and then how does that kind of square in with when we're talking about this Xi-Zelensky call? Yeah, like you said, I mean, a lot of the people I was speaking to were, were saying something similar. You know, China's sort of been forced to do something positive after to, 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 to you know, it's scrambling to to repair the damage done by by Lou. Um, who, as you said, spoke uh, on 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 French TV and earned a reprimand, really from Beijing, a very rare reprimand when they posted on the French em- the Chinese embassy in France's website that he was speaking in a personal capacity. Never heard of that happening to a Chinese diplomat before. I didn't think that they did that. Um, but you know, the, the people are pointing to the fact that they, they needed to almost offer something to to Europe, Um, as well as the fact that, um, as you mentioned, Europe's in the process of devising a new China strategy, Um, you know, and this is probably a pretty good time to do something that would be perceived positively, Um, you know, and... I suppose others are, 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 you know, still are pointing to the the fact that Macron has has gone out on a limb to um, to try and engage China diplomatically here, and you know, fans of Macron are pointing to this and thinking, well, you know, maybe it worked. So it depends on where you sit politically, I suppose. I I generally think that there, there there's a, a over the last fourteen months a, a certain cynicism and a certain suspicion that was already building towards China, probably over the course of the pandemic, uh, the coercion of Lithuania over Taiwan, uh, that really sort of picked up a notch or two over the course of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. And so even though China's quite smart, I suppose, of uh, at, um, you know, Preying on 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 what Europe wants, uh, you know, Europe, Europe is really keen for China to do something positive here. And and as I said, Xi Jinping said that he would make this call when the time was right. You know, so so, so I suppose that the sense was that this is the right time to do this. But I don't think that um, that that it's enough really to to undo the damage of, of of to the to the relationship that's happened over the past twelve to fourteen months. That doesn't mean people aren't going to 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 give China a chance. I think that you know if if 
Beijing is able to do something positively, the people in Europe will generally be be pr pretty pleased with it. But yeah, I think that there's a combination of um, you know more dovish voices being quite excited by by the last couple of weeks and the cynics perhaps just uh, having a bit more of a measured reaction. Right, right. Well, you talk you talk there about. Um... You know, there's a, a new China policy is getting formulated within the bloc. I mean, the the buzzword that gets thrown around is you know de-risking. Um, you know, in contrast to decoupling, which is you know what, especially what we saw coming out of Washington and you know in the later Trump years, early Biden years. But um, can you explain a little bit what what is what is de-risking and why does that seem to where does that fit into this into the EU as they're looking at a new strategy? Yeah, de-risking is a term that was first coined, uh, well, first used in this context by Ursula von der Leyen uh, late March, uh, ahead of her trip to, to Beijing. Uh, and essentially it is, um, if you break it down into a couple of different points, it is weaning uh, the European Union economy off uh, its dependencies on China for critical minerals. Uh, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen, seen the stats of, of Europe relying on China for almost all of the vital components to, towards building, uh, you know, renewable energy equipment, uh, you know, these rare earths and so on that will power the future, really, you know, lithium-ion batteries and, and things like that. So, there, you know, part of the de-risking strategy is to uh, make Europe a bit more independent when it comes to, to these sorts of, of commodities. And the second point is to try and protect um, European uh intellectual property and uh, high-tech innovations from falling into the hands of, of Chinese operators that might have uh, perhaps ties to the military. Um, so there's two prongs, really. First is to, sort of, as I said, wean Europe off uh, Chinese um, vital commodities, and the second is to protect European technology. And, you know, it's not actually a very controversial co topic. It's one of the few things that the EU27 can actually agree on, and I think that the, at these uh, summits over one in Stockholm next week of the foreign ministers and then in June a leaders summit in Brussels I think that they will sort of thrash out the broad contours of a of a new China strategy uh, within that um, you know and uh, uh, you've seen um, the, the language around de-risking being picked up in, in recent days by the US as well Jake Sullivan the national security advisor to Joe Biden gave a speech at the Brookings Institute last week in which he commandeered the language and name-checked von der Leyen a couple of times, um, you know, and I think it's uh, something that China's viewing very warily. Um, certain op-eds in the Chinese press have uh, said that, you know, de-risking is a byword for decoupling. Don't think that's the case at all, at least when it comes to Europe. Uh, in my experience, and there's very little appetite for decoupling, which would be sort of uh, economically damaging to, to Europe. I think that a very managed form of de-risking is, is, is easy to sell to the member states because it doesn't affect a major part of, of the trade. It's uh, very targeted into these areas that I that I mentioned. Um, so I think that's going to be the, the word du jour of the, of the coming months. Another point to add is that it's also, it can be used very vaguely. Um, it can be used, it's almost vague enough to suit member states who can agree on very little when it comes to China, um, uh, certainly not when it comes to, to decoupling anyway. Okay. So, I mean, we're, we're, we kind of gave the, the top level view here, but I, I, I'm curious, Finbar, you know, if we can really drill down a little bit back into the, you know, the nitty gritty of the latest developments of the last couple of weeks, you know, especially around Ukraine and China's relationship with Europe. 
Um, you know, we obviously have the call that happened. We, we've spoken about um, China's selection as its, its envoy to lead this peace delegation, which, you know, we're not exactly sure when this is going to happen, who it's going, you know, officially, I think in, in the Chinese readout, they said to Ukraine and quote, you know, other countries, but we can presume that that's to Russia as well. So, you know, this is uh, Li Hu. Uh, Li is a seasoned diplomat. Like you said earlier, you know, he was Chinese ambassador to Russia for 10 years from 2009 to 2019. And I mean, he's somebody who really stands out to me, I think is a pretty interesting selection. And, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised, perhaps in some sense, but I guess in others not, you know, he he is a fluent Russian speaker. He knows the region super well, but he's also a very noted Russophile. You know, he was awarded the Medal of Friendship by Vladimir Putin. And he also wrote in a 2020 essay that China needs a powerful Russia on the world stage. Um, on the other side of that, Fimbar, we have another interesting development uh, with a vote at the UN on May 1st, where China voted in favor of a resolution that labeled Russia's actions against Georgia and Ukraine as aggression. So it seems we're getting pulled in tons of different directions here. What is China trying to do here? And I mean, how have these different events gone down with EU leaders? Yeah, I mean, it does sometimes feel like uh, there's a lot of mixed messaging going on here. I mean, mixed signals, that's what certain diplomats and officials tell me. It's like um, we can't get too carried away because, uh, you know, it it feels like... um, you know, the moment that they see something positive, they they certainly note the you know the history of the of the envoy Li Hui, and um, there, there's a sort of uh, mindfulness of maybe don't get a little bit uh, don't get too carried away here. Um, I, I would say that that, that though on, on the appointment of, of Li Hui, it has been noted that he has obviously got a long history with Russia. But I think generally people will be more interested in in how he operates rather than you know what he's done. There is that recognition that you know he comes with that caveat, of course. Uh, but I'm not sure that would be a disqualifying factor if it looks as though he's acting in good faith in this situation. But it remains to be seen what will happen there. Obviously, um, you know. The trajectory, as I mentioned, has been has been really clear. Um, the suspicion, really, towards everything China does. So, so be it the appointment of uh, of Li Hui, be it the call with Zelensky, all of the all of the sort of positive things are sort of laced with this underlying. Um, wariness towards rising wariness towards uh, towards china's actions um you mentioned the un vote um now it's worth pointing out that colleagues of mine spoke with some chinese diplomats in geneva who actually pushed back against the notion that this signaled any change in intent from from china um china voted yes on the entire resolution which was to bolster ties with the college of or, sorry the council of europe but it actually abstained from a vote on the actual the specific uh text about uh, the paragraph about about Ukraine and um, you know these diplomats were like don't read too much into this it can't be considered an endorsement of that paragraph and it doesn't signal any change in the um, in the Chinese relationship with Russia so uh, you know on the part of certain people in Brussels and and in other European capitals there was great excitement when they saw this and you know they saw it as another step in, in the right direction from from China from their point of view um these people have somewhat invested in the idea of China becoming a peacemaker. There's been a lot of political capital spent on that front. There's also 
you know, we mentioned the economic relationship. I think a lot of people would like to wish that into existence, even, you know, if it, it may not look like it's it's imminently hap- happening. You know, there's a lot of people who would love love for, for China to step up to the plate there. So, you know, they will sort of, uh, I suppose, project their desires onto the onto the situation. But but look, as you mentioned, um, the mixed signals continue. Um, there's not really any clarity on how China is going to develop this. I mean, don't don't forget that um, when Wang Yi spoke at the Munich Security Conference um, late last year, he talked about uh, a Chinese peace plan. And in the run up to that, everybody was super excited. Oh wow! Look, what are we gonna what are we gonna hear from the Chinese? And um, and then we saw the the position paper that was was released, and uh, uh, to say it was underwhelming would be an understatement. Right, right. So yeah, yeah. perhaps perhaps people are uh, others are others are sort of once bitten, twice shy on that front. <laughs> let's see, let's see how it turns out in reality. Right. Well, um, I mean, I'm I'm curious to talk with you a little bit here. Then, I mean, you're talking about the mixed signals coming from China, but I mean, obviously, when we talk about Europe, we talk about the European Union, we're talking about foreign policy getting made by 27 different countries. Um, you know, I, but I'm still kind of curious, you know, obviously, there's, there's different camps, there's different points of view, uh, both in terms of the war in Ukraine, and, and also in terms of viewing uh, China. But I mean, what, what is your sense of how China is seen? Um, and especially is it seen as it could potentially be a credible actor on this? You know, I'm thinking, you know, as much as you have your Emmanuel Macron's, you also have your, uh, you know, Peter Pavel's, the the president of the Czech Republic, who, um, you know, in a recent interview with Politi- Politico, said that Beijing doesn't have a real interest in trying to resolve the war in a short time, and that China can't be trusted to mediate peace between Russia and Ukraine. You know, how dominant is that view expressed by Pavel? Yeah, I think, um, you know, what we can learn from the Diverse, diversity of voices, to put it euphemistically, is that there isn't really a common view on China, uh, particularly in terms of its political aims um, in the EU. Uh, I would say that a general rule of thumb is that as you go further east, you will get a sense of more scepticism um, people among among uh, leaders and officials about China's role as a peacemaker. You mentioned Pavel. I mean, I'm not sure any national leader has articulated things quite as strongly as he has, uh, but Lithuanian Foreign Minister Gabrielis uh, Landsbergis has has run him pretty close. Uh, every time we, we uh, seem to hear from him at a foreign minister's meeting, uh, he, he was, you know, he's, he's obviously uh, been for some time one of the more for, uh, forthright voices on China within the Union, and I think in recent weeks he's he's kind of poured scorn on the idea of China as a peacemaker uh, after the Lu Xiaoye um, comments that that's the Chinese ambassador in Paris. He was one of the first to say, look, we told you already that we didn't think um, China was a legitimate peacemaker in Ukraine. And this just really verifies what we validates what we've been saying. In general, I know that the Baltics are, are fairly skeptical. But then again, you do have these voices in Western Europe. Um, you have Emmanuel Macron, uh, Pedro Sanchez, the Spanish Prime Minister who recently visited Beijing, and certain voices in Brussels that are sure that there won't be a peace unless uh, China's on board with it. Um, it's an example, another example of, of the sort of disunity on China. Uh, I mean, ac- economically, as I mentioned, when it comes to like broad concepts such as de-risking, they can get on board with that. But on political issues such as 
China's role as a potential peacemaker in Ukraine, such as the uh, relationship with Taiwan. Like, I, I, I think that there, there really is daylight between a lot of the leaders. And, I, you know, with the exception of, of certain uh, actors like Hungary, I do think that there's a fairly neat de- geographical divider as well uh, between Western Europe and Eastern, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And in the CEE, people tend to, uh, governments tend to see China through very much a security lens, whereas in, in the West of, of the EU, it se- seems to be through an economic lens. So I don't know how, whether whether it's uh, feasible that those uh, bridges could be, um, uh, those gaps could be bridged. I suppose it depends on, on China, what we might see in the coming coming weeks and months on, on, on this front. Let's see see whether they actually do follow through on this. Right. So, I mean, where, where does that leave us? I mean, that's the question that's always in my mind. You know, we've seen these the in the leaked U.S. intelligence files that are on the, the Discord server. Um, within there, you can see, you know, Washington is saying that they don't expect peace talks to take place until at least 2024. Um, you know, as you've mentioned, as we've talked about, we're getting some very varied reactions across the European Union. But China is still pretty determined to be engaging on this issue. You know, there was talks about this with uh with Lula from Brazil, who was welcomed to Beijing, um, it seems the Chinese are really putting their diplomatic capital into this issue. So what's next? I wish I knew, really. <laughs> I mean, in terms of what's on my agenda, um, I mean, just in ge- as a general comment, I would say that you're going to continue to see this sort of uh, engagement on the European side as well. Um, as much as you said China has invested in dip- some diplomatic capital, I think that applies for the EU too. They have invested in sort of calling Beijing out on this and, and continuing to ask for their support. Um, when I speak to some officials, the sense is that uh, the moment you take the foot off the pet- pedal, the message that will be received in Beijing is, okay, well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. So maybe it's okay to to maybe be a bit more pro-Russia or perhaps to send some arms to Russia. I mean, that's what some officials are saying. We need to just keep banging that drum, keep going to Beijing and keep telling them what we think. Because in the case of somebody like Xi Jinping, he doesn't hear these things from his advisors or those who are surrounding him. So he needs to be hearing them from us. Um, But I think in terms of of what's coming up in the calendar, we mentioned next week I'm going to be in Stockholm uh, where the foreign ministers are going to be having a well, well overdue uh, proper discussion about China. And I'm sure this is going to be front and centre as well as all of the economic stuff. I think that the, um, you know, the China's diplomatic efforts will will be really debated at length. Um, Borrell, Joseph Borrell, the EU's top diplomat, who was supposed to go to China a couple of weeks ago, but he got covid He's planning to go there in June, I understand, uh, either before or after he goes to the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. So we will see if anything meaningful comes out of that. We're still waiting for an EU-China summit. Uh, The date for that has slipped again. We don't know when that's going to be, but probably in the second half of the year at this point. And of course, we're going to have an EU leaders summit rather on China in June. So I think, you know, what happens in between all of those 
you know, calendar appointments depends on on what happens with with China. I saw the Wall Street Journal reporting that uh, Li Hui, the the special envoy for for this situation, could be traveling as early as this week, and they mentioned that he could be going to Western European capitals as well, mentioning Paris. Um, you know, there was a Bloomberg story about uh, two or three weeks ago saying that uh, despite the blowback he received on uh, after his fleet his uh, trip to to China that Macron had uh, instructed his own diplomatic advisor to keep engaged with China with a view to getting some peace talks um, in the summer, which, you know, as you mentioned, that that US intelligence, it seems pretty far-fetched when you look at the actual situation on the ground. But look, it's... it's, um, I think I'm sure it's going to keep us uh, keep us both occupied. Read we'll, definitely we'll, will be. Yeah, we'll be watching it very closely. Um, okay. Well, I I'm going to turn over to some some reader questions now. Um, so this is also for anybody who's listening to us live right now. If you have a question that you would like to ask Finbar or myself, uh, please raise your hand and we can give you the floor and we'd be happy to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, I have a question from Layla, who is a newsletter subscriber. Um, and her question is about, you know, for up until this point of the war, until this call with Zelensky, we basically, you know, Zelensky's barely even been mentioned in some of the leading publications inside the country. There's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, how Chinese state media inside the country has really been, you know, cutting out the Ukrainian point of view and really echoing this, this, this Russian one. You know, she asks, is there any sense that this is going to change? Um, you know, Finbar, I don't know to what extent you, you want to jump in on there, but I'm curious if you have any any thoughts or anything to throw there, um, and then I can uh, follow up. I don't know is the answer, but I suppose, like, you know, uh, as people, I suppose, who, who read a lot of more, lot more Chinese state media than, than your average, um, you find often that the, the media follows what the government does. Um, so whether that will change will probably depend on what happens on a diplomatic front. Um, I don't expect that um, there's all of a sudden going to be a about face and, you know, Zelensky is going to be splashed on the front page of People's Daily or anything like that. But obviously the, the coverage in the state media will very much follow the reality, what the, the the situation with what's trying to be projected and by by China's uh, China's diplomats themselves, um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose it's it's uh, it's something we're watching very closely. I mean, like um, there's still even despite this supposed engagement of late, the description of the uh, of the war has not been changed. Still described as a as a conflict or a the Ukraine situation. So the very basic language with which Chinese state media hasn't hasn't massively changed. Right, from, it's still from, not from wanting to, to use the word war. Right, that that still hasn't really changed. Yeah, at all, or right? invasion. Like the term invasion, I think, also hasn't. Been, hasn't been used uh, at all. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's very much um, uh, still back at that very basic level. I don't think things have changed dramatically. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I mean, to, to add anything, I would just say that perhaps as this heats up a lot more, we'll probably get a lot more attention to what China is doing, you know, portraying China on the war, engaging with the Ukrainians. Um, but also, I would say, especially, I would imagine it would continue with this theme, which we've seen since February 2022, which is very much, you know, China is the peacemaker, putting it in pretty stark contrast with the United States, which is the, you know, the one who's adding fuel to the fire, as they, they like to say in the uh, official language, and also that makes it into state media. Um, so perhaps we're going to see some changes there. But otherwise, I mean, I wouldn't expect a massive uh, departure. 
Um, yeah, well, one thing I'll add quickly on that is something we've started to see in um, in the last few days. I've noticed a few pieces. Actually, SMP, my newspaper, ran an op-ed with uh, uh, written by Joe Bo, who's a former PLA um, colonel, um, and. He, 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 his point, and I've seen this repeated by a number of commentators, was that uh, you know China and the U.S. are actively competing over Europe. Um, Europe will be the, the sort of battleground for the Cold War, uh, and actually that's quite new. Um, you know, and obviously that, that Ukraine is is a huge part of that. Uh, in his piece, Joe Bo didn't go into great detail about uh, Ukraine, but I mean, I, w- I wonder if we if we do start seeing tacit acknowledgement that. That, that Beijing sort of sees um, sees this as uh, you know the, the next frontier, so to speak. Um, but I mean, I, th- I just thought that was a little interesting quirk I picked up of late. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very interesting. It also actually just ties into uh, another question that I received, which is, you know, again talking about um, you know you bring up this idea of you know China and the United States competing, you know that they're their struggle or however you want to characterize it is going to be happening um, across Europe, which I think is quite interesting. Um, and if I think of, you know, Nicholas Burns, who's the U.S. ambassador to China, um, he recently gave an interview to Politico. Um, and so this is the, the question here from the reader saying that, you know, in the quote there from Nicholas Burns, he says, China is infinitely stronger than the Soviet Union ever was. So that's in reference to the long-term competition that's shaping up between Beijing and Washington. So the question is, I mean, is this a Cold War already? Or is this playing out across Europe? Or is this, are we still not there yet? I mean, I'm sure, Finbar, this is something you hear a lot from people. I'm sure every time you go home, somebody brings this up or asks you or something like that. But I mean, in the halls of Brussels, is there a sense that, you know, we're approaching a new Cold War between the United States and China, or even that we're already in one? Yeah, I think when you speak to people privately, they're probably willing to to say that yes, this does have all the elements of of what would be considered a cold war. Um, there's a sense, um, and sometimes I get this myself, but uh, certainly when I speak to officials as well, that um, that when when you speak with Chinese interlocutors here in in Brussels or in Europe, they only ever talk about the United States, and vice versa. When you speak to US counterparts. They also talk about China. Um, so Europe certainly does feel like it's it's caught in the middle. And in terms of um, of Cold War, I mean, yeah, I mean, that term has been thrown about. I mean, back when I was reporting on the US-China trade war in Hong Kong, I mean, it's not necessarily a new uh, term, but it's certainly something you're seeing used with more regularity. Um, one thing is that uh, certainly that we've noticed is that um, in terms of picking a side, I mean, obviously the, the European Union will always say that it's not equidistant between the United States and China. It's much more closer ideologically to the United States than it ever will be to China. But there is also some wariness of what might be down the road. Um, you know, the, the, the EU doesn't necessarily want to go out on a limb in sort of support of the US stance towards China when they don't know who's going to be in the White House in uh, at the end of next year. And, you know, the, the, the memories of uh, the, the four years of uh, almost like isolation under, under the Trump administration and, you know, tariffs and, uh, you know, threats to leave NATO and all this, uh, and, 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 you know, just the, the, the animosity that, that sort of um, characterized that four year period, that, that those are still very fresh. Um, here in Brussels, uh, and, and you know, in terms of, so, so I don't, so I think that's one of the reasons why you see that uh, Europeans are 
far less reluctant, far more reluctant rather to to follow U.S. Uh, policy on China than they than they might have been in an alternative universe where there had never been a Trump or such a character in in the White House. Um, you know, so let's let's see what happens there. But I know that's one of the sort of driving forces behind strate- the strategic autonomy discussion in Europe as well, where they want to make sure that they're sort of um, able to economically be stand on their own two feet right. here, in, here in Europe. Okay, Fimbar, uh, thanks again for taking the time and for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Um, hope to have you back in the future. Um, and for everybody listening, thank you very much. Uh, please subscribe to the China and Eurasia newsletter, which comes out every other Wednesday. Uh, I'll be back in two weeks' time. And until then, I'm Reed Standish.